Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. This is the June 26 update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the resource tab. Today's learning objectives are, describe the disparities in COVID-19 population, discuss COVID-19 trends found in the Black and Latinx populations, and discuss strategies to mitigate and eliminate risks and disparities in these populations. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters, and are free of influence from Pfizer Incorporated. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Kathleen Page, an Assistant Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She will be discussing disparities and their impact on COVID-19 in the Latinx community. Dr. Alwater, Dr. Page, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you, Rachel, and uh, it's just delightful that Dr. Kathleen Page is joining us today to center on, I think, some highly important issues that um, we're really still learning so much about with COVID-19. You know, in the first six months, I, I, I have to say, you know, initially we sort of knew from the Chinese experience that people of older ages and comorbidities really presented, you know, significant risk factors for being hospitalized or, or unfortunately dying. But especially as we've gotten more information from Europe and North America, it's become apparent, especially here in the United States, that uh, Blacks, for example, uh, members of the Latinx community and, and Native Americans have really had a greater tendency towards more severe disease, hospitalizations, and so on. You know, everyone sort of looks for issues, genetics, is it uh, socioeconomic? And uh, Kathleen, I know uh, you've been here at Johns Hopkins with me for quite a while here and uh, Baltimore is a city that has a significant uh, black population, but a, a growing uh, Latinx uh, population as well. Uh, tell me a little bit your views about what might be socioeconomic issues and barriers to healthcare versus maybe something that's a little more intrinsic or related to comorbidities. What's your view? Yeah, I think, um, I, you know, Paul, as you've mentioned there, you know, it, it certainly has emerged not only in Baltimore, but throughout the country that health disparities, um, uh, uh, racial and, and ethnic health disparities associated with COVID-19 with uh, Blacks, Latinx, and uh, Native Americans having higher rates and also higher morbidity, hospitalizations, and deaths. Um, 
So I think there's uh, a number of factors, uh, I would say structural factors that are contributing to this. Um, I would say a lot of this, frankly, when, when you see patients that are mostly infected, what's notable to me is that so many of them are from fairly low socioeconomic status. And many of them, because of that, are having uh, issues with access to healthcare, um, issues with employment, living in essential, uh, working in essential uh, jobs that don't often afford the protections needed. And many of these are people who were working right at the peak of the pandemic. And then because, again, because of low socioeconomic status, housing conditions um, can be such that can really contribute to transmission. So lots of people living in, in crowded settings. Here in Baltimore, what's really been really remarkable has been, uh, and, and something that I've been very involved in, has been the impact, particularly among Spanish-speaking Latinos. And you know, as you know, Paul, I've been working with this community for, for over a decade, and certainly have been aware of, of many of the factors that, that are challenging uh, when it comes to healthcare. For example, many of these patients, if not a majority, of, of the Spanish-speaking Latinos in Baltimore are not eligible for health insurance or, or the Affordable Care Act exchanges. And so there's a large proportion that are uninsured. And while there are FQHCs and clinics that will accept these patients and take care of them, uh, many of them have not actually been able to engage for a variety of reasons. Um, in addition, these patients, uh, these people, not all of them are patients, are not eligible for other benefits, including, for example, uh, unemployment benefits, uh, the stimulus check. Um, and so there's a real necessity to continue to work. And so it's really been almost a consistent story in, in many, many of the patients that I've seen that uh, they were working. When they developed symptoms, they felt like they had to continue to work. Uh, because that was the only way to make money and to survive um, because of low savings and other issues. And then, again, because of their low wages, many are living in very, very, very crowded conditions that I don't think I was even aware of until this happened. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. for example, 10 laborers who are not necessarily related, all living in a two-bedroom apartment and sharing a bathroom or... Um, you know, families that are sharing a townhouse. So the townhouse may have five bedrooms and there's one family of four or five in each townhouse. And, and as you can imagine with COVID-19, that, that is a real recipe for transmission. Yeah, I, you know, you bring up so many important points and I, I think it's so hard to know because I, I think there's just multiple issues that unfortunately are just conspiring to make uh, these very hardworking and family-oriented people, especially ones that are so dependent on paychecks to move ahead. Uh, you know, um, I've heard a number of things just as I've been assisting with COVID care since March and just was wondering your impressions, because on the one hand, some issues uh, speak to people that just haven't gotten a lot of routine care, undertreated or non-treated diabetes, for example, or or perhaps uh, people that um, have higher body mass index and obesity is a risk factor. And then, you know, on the other hand, it's, you know, is it more people that tend to live in large population, you know, uh, in larger homes and facilitate spread, super spreads. We have the meat packing plants that is a kind of work issue. Mm -hmm. And um, and then lastly, um, you know, I even wonder about public health messaging, you know, how 
you know, how receptive, how good are we doing trying to help message uh, on a public health standpoint here? Because unfortunately, many people in these jobs don't have employers that are organized or have the, the will really to help inform and take care of their workers, I think. It, it's really uh, difficult on so many levels, I think. But, but I mean, is there any sense you feel what contributes more or less? I, it may be so hard to say. I think I think these are really such critical questions. Let, let me sort of unpack it uh, piece by piece. Um, yeah, please. The issue yeah. of comorbidities or underlying comorbidities, I think, contributes. I don't think it's the main driver. It certainly contributes to severe disease, as we all know. Um, and so, um, obesity, but in particularly di- in particular diabetes, has really jumped out uh, to me. And you know, as as you know, Paul, I've been We've been doing some consults. Uh, we've set up this consult uh, service uh, at Hopkins to deploy bilingual providers to to help the teams and the patients. And one of the things that has really stood out to me is how many people uh, are coming in with diabetes and a hemoglobin A1C that's high uh, to suggest that this has been ongoing for some time. Um, but when you talk to them, they had never seen a doctor since being in the U.S. And and so I actually had someone look into this a little bit uh, uh, in our system. And um, among those, just to give you a sense, and this is sort of very first pass uh, information data, not 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 fully whatever. But um, among those patients who were Latino who had a, a hemoglobin A1C and were admitted into the hospital, not all of them had one, but among those that did, only 10% had a normal hemoglobin A1C, about 30% had prediabetes, and the rest had diabetes, and among those, over 50% had an A1C of over nine, which Mm. suggests to you either poorly controlled or not diagnosed diabetes, and this is consistent actually with national data Last year, uh, there was a publication in JAMA looking at undiagnosed diabetes by race and ethnicity and prevalence of diabetes. The diabetes among Latinos was the highest from any other uh, racial ethnic group at around 22%. It varied a little bit by country of origin, and I think there's there's some genetics associated with that. Uh, With the highest rate among um, Mexican-Americans, it was about 24%. Mm. And, 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 and concerningly, and I think relevant to this conversation, uh, Latinos also had the highest rates of undiagnosed diabetes, more than twice as high as, as whites and other groups. Yeah. So I think that that certainly is contributing and certainly contributing to the um, uh, severe disease that we're seeing. And so many, as you point out, are afraid to access medical care because of engagement with the system that... Uh, you know, has often uh, created issues about documentation issues and so on, or, or it could be on a cost basis without any insurance. So, um, and I, I, you know, it's interesting because I think many don't know about, for example, federal healthcare centers are still leery about seeking help there. Yeah, and, and, and frankly, at least in Baltimore, uh, you know, I've been in contact with these centers and they're also at capacity. So their, their ability to take more patients is also somewhat limited. Um, I, I think, you know, you asked me about public health messaging and I think yeah. that is uh, actually really critical. And what, while there's been sort of uh, generic messaging and, and most of that messaging is translated to Spanish um, and that's, uh, that's definitely a good step. Uh, well, first of all, let me just say that there's been mixed messaging 
uh, from public health all along the way, not necessarily because- It could be in English think, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. As we learn things, messaging changed, right? So there was messaging about not using masks and then to use masks. And then, um, you know, and then there was early on, if you remember, Paul, uh, there was, because of limited testing uh, ability and PPE, there was a, a pretty strong message to stay home if yeah. you had symptoms and, and call your doctor. Uh, and that, you know, raised red flags for me because I knew that, you know, that that's a good advice for me because I have a doctor. Uh, but I knew that so many people in this community did not have a doctor. Mm -hmm. And so they were probably hearing the message, stay home. And then I don't know what to do with that. Um, so we did set up very early on a bilingual hotline um, with our, our partners, um, Esperanza Center, a community-based organization. And in that line, I mean, I am so thankful to them that they were willing to deploy that quickly um, because it got over a thousand calls early on and, and, and the positivity rate among people who were calling that line was over 50%. So there was a huge demand. There were other lines that were set up by both Hopkins and the health department. The problem with those lines is that they didn't have Spanish speaking capacity. And so then it becomes a huge barrier, right? It's hard to you know, call a line if you don't talk the language. So, so there was a little bit of mixed messaging, but I would say that you know, one of the most important messages that I think um, the, this community specifically needs to hear, um, and it's very helpful if it comes from public health or, or institutions like Hopkins, are two big messages. You, you should seek help. It does not matter if you have insurance or papers. There is help and you will sort of something to the aim. You will not get saddled with huge medical bills that will make you bankrupt. Um, so that I think is, is important. And then the other piece is, is really related to immigration. So many people, because they are here without legal status, they just assume that they're not eligible for anything uh, because they generally are not. And that, but that not anything includes going to the emergency room. And so having some measures that says really, uh, we do healthcare systems, public health, we do not collaborate with immigration authorities. Um, mm -hmm. It is safe mm -hmm. to come here and we welcome you. Uh, we wanna help. I think those are, uh, uh, those to me would be the two key messages. Like right now, worry about your health, not the money. We'll figure it out. And secondly, we do not collaborate with immigration authorities. Yeah, hey, Kathleen, I think th those two messages are just so important, you know, for at least uh, practitioners and, and patients to understand and help work with what other institutions or public health officials in the community. I mean, you've done such fantastic and innovative work, especially with the, the Latino community, but really it's a model, I think. and. You you talk about what I might call lost in translation in a bit because you're very medically oriented with your juntos and working with Esperanza and so on. Uh, there's a little story that I, I think you may have heard, I'm not sure, but it really helped one of our patients tremendously that I think sort of captures a lot of these threads. So one of our inpatients was Spanish speaking only and hospitalized with severe COVID, but had improved enough to be discharged, but still required oxygen. And in Baltimore, we've turned the convention center, our convention center into a field hospital. So people didn't have resources, they don't have insurance, they can get oxygen and sort of lower acuity care there and so on. And of course we had a medical translator from a service, you know, work with our house staff and our attendings and translation, but the patient was adamant. He did not want to go at all, absolutely adamant. 
And we couldn't understand why. And so, you know, he was taking up a hospital bed and so on. But then your group came in and quickly determined that whatever the medical translator was translating, the convention center to this patient meant detention center. And you were able to clarify that this had nothing to do with uh, immigration services or anything like that. And I, I think we would have just been flummoxed otherwise. And, and so it's those kind of uh, aspects that are really just so valuable that you need to know the community and their concerns. And even a Spanish translator didn't really have enough depth to try to understand. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I actually was a person who saw that patient. Oh, good. So would you. <laughs> I remember him very clearly because he was one of our first initial consults. And, you know, I have to say, this is a young man. I walked in the room. He was petrified. Like, and, and, and I, you know, I, you know, one of the things that, as you said, you know, the Juntos consult, which is, again, bilingual providers who get deployed to help the teams, you know, we, we are medical providers and really are, you know, that's what we want to talk. We want to talk medicine in Spanish directly to the patient without like third party interpretation. But a lot of the conversation ends up being just, just shooting the breeze because it's so, you know, as, as, as people, you know, practitioners know, uh, these poor COVID patients, English or Spanish speakers, it doesn't matter. They're very isolated in the rooms. Nobody shows up except essentially. And, and so it's, they, they usually uh, brighten up when, when someone walks in and starts talking to them in Spanish. They're especially surprised when I talk Spanish because my name is English, etc. They don't think that I will speak Spanish. Um, but, uh, but I think what I, what I have found in these consoles, and, and he was a classic example. This kid was kid, I say, because he was probably in his 20s, he was young, hmm. petrified. And I am 100% sure that the interpreter has said convention center. But to someone who's thinking so much about family separation, detention, and all that, you can see how easily that was missed. You know, he heard something else. And, and it was easy to explain to him, no, no, no. But, but I, 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 of course, knew that, that many people think that. And I've had also the experience, now the hospital, now the Baltimore City Health Department has a beautiful five-star hotel that has been re, sort of reimagined uh, for isolation for people who need uh, this space. And, you know, in conversations with them, talking to them about how, uh, for some people, it was impossible to isolate they said, okay, let, let send, send us your patients. And, and, and that conversation also, although there's no, com no confusion with detention center, what, what there is is a little, it's mistrust, right? So it sounds too good to be true. When we tell people, you know, you can go to this hotel, you'll get three meals, like they, you know, we have Spanish language. They, they just honestly yeah. takes a bit of time to convince them that this is true because for so long that whatever's been offered to them has not been a five-star hotel or anything close to that it's just hard to imagine um but i but i think the the key thing is that you know when you go um and and talk to someone in the same language i i find that people ask a lot more questions that maybe they wouldn't have with an interpreter because it you know it's just a little bit more stunted the conversation and so they're able they sort of you know you can have again when you, you know, the, the, the things that we do in English as well, you know, giving pause, using silence to get people to open up, asking open-ended questions, that's a lot easier to do in the same language than it is, you know, if you're using an interpreter where probably yes, no questions are the easier way to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say this example to me, whether we're talking about underrepresented minorities or really our whole 
kind of approach to COVID in the United States, I just think is emblematic that you have trust and you have communication. And when you don't have proper uh, messages or even it with changes, but when you have so many different people saying different things or, or there's not the trust component, it's very difficult, I think. And, you know, uh, I remember this story that I talked about on one of our videos earlier, but public relations people vote, uh, went through the countries and said, which countries had the best messaging? and it equaled the best trust. And who, who was it? New Zealand. Well, where is there no COVID cases right now? Yeah. Granted, there are islands, but it's New Zealand. Or it's certain countries in Europe, for example, where there's a strong message and good communication skills. And I think what you're speaking here is a, a community that is so, so much worse off than, than many others in the United States, and we're not starting at a great point either. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I the communication, if you think about what the community, I mean, you, you give examples of countries where their big leaders have been very clear in their communication. And and if you think about the communication that, that this community has gotten, um, including from our highest leaders, it's not, it, it, it does not encourage um, a trust. Let's put it that way. Well, uh Kathleen, Dr. Page, I want to really much so much thank you uh, for this uh, great discussion about some of these issues. And uh, I think we're going to have another piece that will focus on some other aspects as well. So wanted to absolutely thank you for your time today. No, you're very welcome. Thank you, uh, Paul, for having me and Rachel. Really a pleasure to be part of this conversation. Thank you, Dr. Page and Dr. Alwater, for an enlightening discussion about a very important topic. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.